Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. The Rookie is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie. time for sports headlines all galaxy quality content taken from the pages of the ins city gazette headline earthlings face krakens in tier two semifinals by kagan the witty earth associated press in a game that really wasn't as close as the score indicates the texas earthlings defeated the errol archers 21 17 to advance to the tier two semifinals the Earthlings faced the Ionath Krakens, champions of the Quith Irradiated Conference. The Earthlings' defense led the way, allowing only 10 points. The Archers managed one defensive score to keep it close, a 22-yard interception return for a touchdown by Minneapolis. Earthlings linebacker Alonzo Castro was named the game's MVP. Castro, a rookie from the Sigurd Norseman of the PNFL, had eight solo tackles, along with an interception and a critical quarterback sack, his fifth of the season. Quote, Castro's speed has taken our defense to a new level, said Earthlings coach Pata the Calculating. Teams have to watch out for him, and that helps keep double teams off Choco Thillet. End quote. Choco Thillet, the Earthlings all-pro defensive tackle, finished the day with two sacks and five tackles. Quote, Choco Thillet was basically unblockable said Archer's coach David Dejardin. We couldn't do anything with him. He injured three linemen. I'm glad the season is over, because we couldn't even field an offensive line right now. He's the hardest hitter in the game. End quote. Offensively, the Earthlings moved the ball with efficiency and didn't give up a single turnover. Quarterback Case Johansson went 21 of 34 for 225 yards and a 12-yard touchdown pass to running back Peter Loachy. The Earthlings utilized a ball control offense, chewing up the clock by relying on running back Pookie Chang. Chang racked up 122 yards on 27 carries, including touchdown runs of 3 and 7 yards. This has been Sports Headlines, taken straight from the pages of the INS City Gazette, brought to you by Junkie Gin. Junkie Gin tastes like a touchdown every time. Quentin had never been to Earth. In fact, most citizens of the Pyrrhus Nation had never been there. Earth, after all, was the capital of the Planetary Union, the historical enemy of the Pyrrhus Nation. Earth was also the cradle of Satan, the birthplace of evil, the home of the human betrayers and the brother killers. Centuries ago, the powerful people of Earth had cast out the faithful, sending Mason Stewart and his followers on a perilous journey across the void. Only the hand of the High One himself had saved the Chosen People, delivering them to a green place from which the purest nation flourished. At least, that was the story. Quentin couldn't help but believe some of it. That story, after all, had been drummed into his head since before he could speak. 
Yet that didn't dull his excitement as the touchback prepared to drop out of punch space near Earth. Earth. The beginning of humanity. Regardless of the purest nation's current politics, Earth was where it had all begun. Not just for the species, like Quentin could give a crap about that. Earth was the birthplace of football. Quentin could barely contain his excitement. What would he see first? The legendary Kraft Cheese Stadium? The 200-year-old Ford Orbital Stadium, site of five Galaxy Bowls, site of all the Earth Football League championships from 2482 until the end of the league in 2566. The Professional Football Hall of Fame in some place called Canton. Perhaps one of the many universities where they still played collegiate football, a historic, if quaint, anachronism. Some had even called college football Tier 4 football a place for people to play when they weren't good enough to cut it on a Tier 3 team. Rumor was, the entire Kraken squad would be guests at one of the most historical games in the sport, 800 years of tradition, marked by a game with a team called Michigan versus a team called Ohio State. His excitement ran at such a high level, he almost forgot to be afraid of punch-out. Almost. The touchback shuddered as they slipped back into reality. View screens changed from pitch black to a stunning view of a cloud-speckled blue world. Earth. A dozen orbital stations, the biggest only a twentieth the size of the Ace or Emperor II, floated in Earth's near space. Two of those stations had long, thin tubes running down toward the surface of Earth, stretching out so far that the silvery tendrils faded away into nothing. Quentin wondered if they were some kind of communications assembly. It was the most highly populated human planet at 18 billion beings, although a good 5 billion of those were of the Witok and dolphin species that lived in the planet's vast oceans. The Witokians living there, of course, were the original catalyst that resulted in Mason Stewart and his followers leaving Earth on their long pilgrimage to the Promised Land. That anti-alien basis had permeated every aspect of purest life. Quentin now knew this, and knew that he could never go back to living in such a place, not when he fought on the field with his alien teammates day in and day out. He had no place to call home. Maybe someday, after he retired, he'd come live on Earth. The touchback veered towards one of the orbital stations with the long tendril. As it drew close, Quentin saw that the tendril was far from thin. It was a massively thick tube that stretched down and down and down. Like other orbital stations, this one had many long piers that jutted out from a central radius. Each pier reached out for miles, dotted with ships of all makes and colors. The touchback gently approached a pier and shuddered lightly as mechanical arms reached out to lash the bus to an anchoring port. Team disembark, the computer voice said. All players disembark. Hey, aren't we taking the shuttle down? Quentin asked Yitzhak as the team walked out. Shuttle? Not on Earth, buddy. No shuttle traffic allowed. Everyone takes the tube to get to and from the surface. A recorded voice droned over hidden loudspeakers. Welcome to Hudson Bay Station. Please watch your step on the moving sidewalk. No weapons of any kind are allowed on Hudson Bay Station. Welcome to Hudson Bay Station. Just outside the hatch, a long, two-band moving sidewalk ran off into the distance, towards the station's central spine. 
The band on the outside moved at a decent clip, while the central band seemed to move twice as fast. Just past the moving sidewalk was a large, clear tube. Inside the tube were two more tubes, side by side, each filled with water. Bubbles and bits of flotsam showed the nearest tube flowed towards the station core, while the one on the other side flowed out to the end of the pier. Inside the tube, Quentin saw Watokians, dolphins, and Lee Key swimming along like fish in a packed aquarium. The team filtered onto the walkway, which briskly moved them along the pier. Quentin watched Yitzhak casually step on the first band. As he moved away, he carefully stepped to the central band. He shot down the pier moving at least 20 miles an hour. Quentin followed suit. He stepped on the first band and almost lost his balance at the sudden shift in momentum. He steadied himself, then stepped onto the second band to experience another surge of acceleration. He jogged down the central strip until he caught up with Yitzhak. Why don't they just use shuttles? Yitzhak laughed. Because they don't want to get blown up, that's why. Anything that gets below the 80,000 feet boundary is instantly attacked and destroyed by a flight of Kratorakian fighters. Destroyed? But why? Yitzhak looked at Quentin for a moment, a quizzical look on his face. Are you serious? Quentin felt a little stupid because he nodded. Because of the suicide attacks, Yitzhak said. Purist nation terrorists, they attack any chance they get, blow themselves up as long as they can inflict heavy casualties. Quentin felt defensive anger swarm to the front of his thoughts. What makes you think they're from the purest nation? Yitzhak put a hand on Quentin's shoulder. Don't get mad at me, Q. There's dozens of terrorist groups on Earth, and after an attack, they contact the media and actually claim responsibility. Their goal is supposedly to drive all aliens off the planet. The purest repatriation assembly is the worst. Two years ago, the PRA managed to nuke a Wittok city in the Atlantic, killed three million Wittok, dolphins, and humans. That was just the initial blast. That area of the Atlantic has been utterly devastated. They're still working on the radiological cleanup. Some people wanted to bring in a big team of Quith engineers, who are the experts on cleaning up radiation, but there's too much suspicion that the Quith will squat on that spot the way they did on Ionath and Wittok. Byrak overheard the conversation and walked over. Those fears are stupid. Why would we want to start a colony on a planet that does not live in freedom? Yitzhak shrugged. That's Earth citizens for you. You know how suspicious they are. But hey, if you'd lived through 280 years of terrorism, your people would be suspicious too. The walkway zipped along the pier, passing a regular progression of dock locks. Most locks were closed, but some were open, and Quentin saw just about every species represented. The fast-moving sidewalk seemed to control congestion on the pier, but it was still a very busy place indeed. I hope there's no construction this time. I'd really like to get down to the surface sometime in the near future. There's always construction. The walkway entered a large, noisy, domed open space. Ornate lights lined the ceiling, and voices in all languages repeatedly echoed through the cavernous space. The red zone is for loading and unloading of passengers only. Please do not loiter in the red zone. No weapons are allowed on Hudson Bay Station. 
If you are carrying a weapon of any kind, please report it to the nearest constable and turn it in. Carrying a weapon on Hudson Bay Station is a capital offense. The team moved towards a huge line of beings. Waist-high silver stands dotted the length of the line, a red velvety rope hanging between each of the stands. Off in the distance, the line emptied into a cavernous, hexagonal central area. A massive circle, at least 200 feet in diameter, dotted each of the hexagon sides. Three of the circles were nothing but a large blank space surrounded by a wide ring of deck. A huge platform sat in the center of the fourth circle. Concentric rings of seats filled the platform. Different colors denoted different sections, like slices of a pizza, and each color had a different type of seat to accommodate either key, sclorno, quith, leaky, or human. Being steadily exited the line and moved onto the platform, taking their respective seats. Once the seats filled, some species sat in seats that didn't quite fit them right, but they didn't seem to mind much, the platform simply dropped out of sight. The last two platforms were blocked off by rings of orange and white barrels with small, flashing orange lights on top. Tools and equipment littered the area, although Quentin saw no workers. A sign read, Your tax dollars at work. Upgrades to the Armstrong elevator, faster drop engines, to be completed in September 2684. Construction, Yitzhak said. I swear they're never finished with this place. Two platforms are down? Byrak moaned. We're going to be here forever. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Quentin waited patiently. While the line did move slowly, it didn't bother him as much as it seemed to bother some of his teammates. Apparently, they had never spent four or five hours standing in line while the starvation trucks dispensed food to an entire city of hungry people. Finally, the Kraken's players reached the end of the line. Platform number three rose up like some giant leviathan, noiselessly filling the giant empty circle that matched its circumference. They wandered onto the platform along with other passengers. 
Quentin found a seat next to Yitzhak, sat down, and waited. Q, you ever been on the shoot before? Quentin shook his head. I hope you don't get motion sick, and if you do, please don't puke on me. Please fasten your seat restraints. The platform will descend in ten seconds. Quentin watched Yitzhak fasten a seatbelt around his waist and followed suit. He silently counted to ten, and then the bottom dropped out of his world. The huge platform simply fell. His hands flew to the armrests, fingers digging into the worn plastic. Falling. Falling. All around the platform, metal walls slid by at a sickening speed. Then, suddenly, the walls were gone, and he was looking at nothing but blue sky and clouds. His stomach roiled and he felt dizzy. Yitzhak's warning echoed in his thoughts, and he wondered if, indeed, he might puke. He closed his eyes and gritted his teeth against an onset of nausea. After five minutes, just when he thought he couldn't handle it anymore, the seat seemed to push against his butt and the floor seemed to press against his feet. They were decelerating. Quentin tried to calm his breathing for the next two minutes as the platform steadily pushed against him. Finally, it slowed to an almost imperceptible speed and stopped with a slight shaking jar. Welcome to Hudson Bay Surface Station. We hope you enjoyed your stay. Quentin followed along as the passengers disembarked. The ground station looked like an exact copy of the orbital station, with the exception that the walls were clear and offered a breathtaking view of Hudson Bay and the surrounding complex. Waves crashed into clear walls, sending up clouds of droplets that sparkled in the sunlight before misting back down. He had never seen so much water before, and yet the footing was rock-solid as dry land. To the east sprawled Hudson Bay Airport, a flat rectangle two miles across and three miles long. The airport, elevated about a hundred feet above the water level, rested on two dozen thick black pylons that ran below the surface. Each pylon, he was told, connected to a subsurface pontoon some three hundred feet below the surface. Dynamic positioning systems controlled the depth and position of each pontoon, ensuring fixed positioning even in the worst storms. He watched a triangular passenger plane land, escorted in by a flight of boxy-looking Kretorakian fighters. To the north sat Quentin's destiny, Hudson Bay Stadium. Unlike the airport, the bottom levels of the stadium dome actually rested below the water, with the playing field sitting some 150 feet beneath surface level. A compartmentalized, triple-walled hull kept the Hudson Bay waters in check, and rumor had it the stadium housed over a thousand water pumps to control leaks ranging from a tiny pinhole to the kind of gaping wound caused by a terrorist attack. The massive lower bowl also rested below the surface level, the top seats just peeking out above the waterline. The second and third decks rested within a gleaming, crystal-clear dome that rose hundreds of feet into the air. To the south sat the floating wonder of Hudson Bay City. Centuries ago, the city was built to house human and Wittok workers harvesting untold amounts of oil and natural gas from deep below the surface. The high-tech boomtown saw many decades of prosperous growth until the natural resources started to run out about the same time demand for those resources dropped due to new technologies. City officials then used the platform's isolation as a trump card to win a contract for Earth's second orbital elevator, the first having been built over the English Channel. 
With the orbital elevator in place, Hudson Bay City blossomed. As one of two main hubs for interstellar commerce, Hudson Bay's economy transformed from drilling to shipping. City officials also lured tourist dollars by building the largest football stadium on Earth. The city's former isolation turned out to be its strongest asset. Set in the middle of Hudson Bay, the stadium was easily defended from the airborne terrorist attacks that plagued many other Earth facilities. Masal the efficient scurried about, his helpers gathering the Kraken's players. We are taking the tram to the stadium, Masal said, loud enough to be heard by 53 Krakens and other team staff. Please follow me. The massive players moved toward the underwater tram that would take them to the stadium, the area around them clear of other beings. Quentin noticed black uniform human police all around the platform each one armed, each one staring at the crowds of travelers with a look that promised severe trouble if anyone approached the football players. Fleeting shadows slashed across the floor, Kretorakian soldiers flying through the complex, scouting for trouble. Quentin smiled. Hudson Bay City had trouble, all right. Trouble in the form of the Ionath Krakens, trouble for the Texas Earthlings. One last practice. One last practice before the biggest game of the year. Quentin flowed through the plays as if he had been created for just this one game, as if he'd been meticulously engineered to be a perfect quarterbacking machine. Lines of energy seemed to radiate from all his receivers. He saw them all in perfect clarity, delivering the ball in tight, rope-like spirals that arrived dead center and passing windows no larger than 10 inches across. He had to be perfect. Yasud had the potential to be a great running back, but he was at least two seasons away from that level. Even then, it was doubtful he'd match Mitchell Fayed's powerful, punishing style. The defense wasn't going to consider Yasud a major threat. Most of the defensive pressure would come via blitzing and extra defensive backs, probably both at the same time. The Earthlings would make the Krakens win the game on the ground. Well, forget that. Quentin was going to beat them through the air, drive that ball so far down their throats they'd crap leather for a month. Everything had finally come together. He knew the moves, the speed, the tendencies of Haywick, Scarborough, Mesquitic, Denver, Milford, and even Richfield. And it wasn't just the wide receivers. He had Warburg and Kobayashi down cold, and fullback Tom Perilous was a hidden receiving weapon coming out of the backfield. Hot, hot, hot! The ball slapped his hands and he dropped back, watching the Kraken's defensive backs try in vain to cover the Kraken's receivers. Quentin checked through, his mind racing at biocomputer speed. Haywick, covered. Scarborough, open in another 10 yards. Warburg, open on a short hook. Back to Scarborough open as he knew she would be. He fired the pass in a straight line, drilling Scarborough right on the money 25 yards downfield. Scarborough cut upfield, adding another six yards before Perth gave her a little tap. Full contact was out. They didn't want any last-second injuries gumming up the works. Next play, he dropped back and fired a long TD strike to Haywick, who was playing so well she now had to be considered one of the top five receivers in all of Tier 2. 
Next play. Short hook to Kobayashi, who cut up field and went down easy on a light hit from John Tweedy. Next play. Quentin dropped back, checked off his three receivers, all covered. He turned and threw the safety valve pass to Yasud, who hauled in the tight pass and cut up field. Yasud planted his right foot, and when he cut up field, a snap rang out like a gunshot. He let out a yell, then fell, both hands holding his right knee before his body hit the ground. The ball rolled free, wobbling to a slow stop. Fifty-three spirits collectively sank. Doc floated onto the field. Yasud writhed, his face a twisted mask of agony, his hand still clutched on his knee in white-knuckle desperation. A freak injury, from nothing more than making a sharp upfield cut. Careless! Hokor called from his floating cart. Move to tailback! Kobor, you're in at fullback! Four days from the biggest game of the year, the last obstacle to tier one ball, and the Ionath Krakens had just run out of tailbacks. Quentin walked into Hokor's office and sat down. Hokor stared at the wall, his eye a translucent mauve. Quentin waited for the coach to acknowledge his presence, but the little quith leader just sat there. Uh, coach? Hokor turned suddenly, his eye instantly going clear. Barnes, Hokor said. I didn't see you there. It's okay, coach. You strategizing? Hokor's fur ruffled once, then lay flat. Strategizing, yes. Trying to find an answer for our lack of tailbacks. And? There is no answer. You'll have to carry the game, Quentin. Perilous can run, but the Earthlings won't consider him a threat, nor should they. He's a great blocking back, and good for short yardage, but basically worthless as an open field runner. They're going to blitz on every play. Quentin sat for a second, considering his words. Hokor started staring at the wall again. There is one answer, coach. Hokor turned to look at him once again. Which is? I'll play tailback. Hokor kept staring. I've got the size and the speed, Quentin said. I know the offense inside and out. Hokor nodded. Except for the small detail of who will play quarterback. You think Yitzhak can handle the Earthlings' defensive backs? I'm not talking about Yitzhak. Hokor looked blank for another second. Then his eye flooded a deep black. Absolutely not. I will not have that betrayer run my team ever again. Quentin leaned forward. It's our only chance, coach. You gotta let him back in. No, I'd rather lose than see him on the field again. Would you? Would you really rather lose than have him at quarterback? Because I'd rather do anything than lose. It doesn't matter what he did, coach. All that matters is that we give ourselves the best possible chance to win tomorrow. Hokor sat silent for a moment. He won't even get a chance to practice. Who cares? It's Donald Pine. You remember him? You know, the guy who won two Galaxy Bowls? It's not like he dropped off into moron land in the one week he's been gone. Get him in here. Hokor stared, his eyes slowly fading from deep black to clear. You would do this? You would give up the quarterback spot in the biggest game of the year? That's not like you, Barnes. 
Quentin shrugged. It's like me now, coach. I want to win. I want to play tier one ball. Do you know what you're doing? Do you understand the level of punishment a tailback takes in a game? I'll do whatever it takes to reach tier one. Hokor said nothing. They stared at each other for a long minute, the seconds ticking away on some unseen slow-motion clock. Finally, Hokor pressed a button on his desk. Masal the efficient appeared as if he'd been standing just outside the door the entire time. How may I help you, Coach Hokor? Find Donald Pine. Get him in here immediately. You have been listening to The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League Series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar, with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Super Weapon. Superweaponband.com. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 